Hi everyone, welcome to McGill Cares, a weekly webcast series addressing a wide variety of topics to support family and informal caregivers. I'm Claire Webster, a former caregiver who became a certified Alzheimer care consultant and founder of the McGill Dementia Education Program as a result of my own personal journey. McGill Cares is part of the McGill University Dementia Education Program, and I work with a dynamic team of healthcare professionals to oversee this program, which include Dr. Jose Moret, Division of Geriatric Medicine, Dr. Serge Gauthier, McGill University Research Center for Studies in Aging, and Dr. Jerry Fried, McGill, Center, McGill Steinberg Center for Simulation and Interactive Learning. These webcasts are made possible thanks to the generosity of our donors and sponsors. Today, we will be discussing a very important topic that affects many, many people, especially in, during this time in this pandemic. We are going to be discussing strategies for coping with challenging behavior in dementia care. My guest today is Dr. Wendy Chu, an assistant professor of geriatric medicine at McGill University and a geriatrician at the Montreal General Hospital, McGill University Health Center. Her work primarily involves multidisciplinary assessment and rehabilitation of the frail elderly at the MGH Geriatric Day Hospital. Welcome to the show, Dr. Chu. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, in order for our audience just to get to know you, I mean, in addition to being a geriatrician and a healthcare professional, you have firsthand experience as being a former caregiver. Um, if you'd like to just share a little bit of your journey with everyone. Sure, uh, indeed. Uh, I was primary caregiver to my late husband who had one of the Parkinson's plus or atypical Parkinson's syndromes. And uh, while it's not as common a uh, cause of dementia, of cognitive impairment, uh, and he was never actually formally diagnosed with dementia, in retrospect, yeah, it was there. Mm -hmm. uh, just little things now that when you reflect back on it as a health professional, like how did I not see this happening kind of thing. Um, I, we, were, we, we lived, we, what can I say? We lived with Parkinson's Plus for 13 years from the time he was diagnosed to the time he, he died at home. And um, there were two things that struck me. One, that it was very, very, very hard to accept help um, I'm a little bit of an obsessive compulsive control freak and, you know, I like my things the way I like them and, you know, there we go. And uh, while that has, certainly has its place, it's uh, not always good, particularly in the long run. Uh, but the other thing I have to say, it was a very, very heart-wrenching experience for both of us and our families. Uh, but the silver lining, I think, as, as a health professional, particularly one in this domain, is that it gave me, I think, a huge understanding of what it's like to be on the other side of the fence. I always call that the, the only silver lining of his illness was that, uh, you know, I know about disability tax credits, I know mm. about how to transfer a person from the bed to the chair, um, and also the kinds of emotional hardships that we go through as caregivers. Oh, well, thank you for sharing, and I'm so sorry for your loss. And um, I guess also I want to say I, your patients are fortunate to have you because you will come with a sense of compassion towards these the family members because you know what they are going through. So um, I'd like to really, you know, jump right into this topic. You know, as a as a professional consultant working with families, I have to say that in the last few weeks, I have never received so many calls. Yeah. you know, cries from help from family members regarding, you know, 
the, the, the challenging behavior that they're seeing increasing in their loved one. You know, people are being feeling isolated, you know, afraid to go to the, the ER. Mm-hmm. Um, can you, so because I, I, I find that oftentimes families don't realize that, you know, maybe other people are seeing similar symptoms. What are the most challenging behaviors that you're seeing in your clinic as well as right now in the hospital? Absolutely. Uh, and just, you know, you're mentioning COVID confinement and so forth. There is no question that we have been seeing a huge uptick in uh, family members calling our clinic, but now in the past few weeks of deconfinement, coming into the emergency room, appropriately so, uh, with uh, some of the most challenging so-called behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia, BPSD. You may hear this acronym used by your healthcare professionals. Um, I kind of break it down in, in, in this way. There are certain behaviors that are really the most challenging and potentially dangerous. There are BPSD symptoms that just, you know, maybe are not dangerous, but they really, really wear you out. And then there are kind of these taboo behaviors that nobody ever really quite talks about because of the shame or the embarrassment that comes with it. Um, So in terms of the most challenging, I have to say, I I do find typically the ones that can become the most dangerous are the most challenging. And I was just on call this weekend in the emergency room and and happened to be involved in uh, the care of a gentleman with fairly advanced dementia who got brought into the emergency room for for, uh, a few reasons. One was this chronic, chronic pain issue um, that definitely was based on real symptoms but it had become more than that because of his dementia he had become so preoccupied by it that everything was pain 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 even when he wasn't in pain he was talking about pain we think Um, because of that then he was not sleeping through the night his family described the classic pattern of sundowning where you know three four five o'clock in the evening he started to get more restless more agitated more irritable and then that would just escalate into the night where he was in and out of bed up and down taking towels out here putting towels out there all the meanwhile complaining of pain and it was only until about three or four in the morning did he get tired enough that he would actually settle down and sleep and what that meant was he didn't sleep that also meant his wife didn't sleep So what would happen for him is the next day he would fall asleep and nap most of the day. But his wife had to meanwhile cook and clean and pay the bills and go and get the groceries and stay very much awake, which was exhausting. She was, I mean, this had been going on apparently for weeks. Um, She was really reaching the end of her rope. And on top of it, because of the pain, uh, what really brought him into the emergency room was he was telling her, I can't take this anymore. I'm gonna slit my throat. I can't handle this anymore. I'm going to slit my throat. I want to die. And you can imagine, you hear your family members saying this here, like, what do I do here, you know? So she phoned our clinic and uh, and with the CLSC. And long story short, we said, listen, you got to come into the eMERGE. you got to come into the emergency room because, you know, God forbid he does try to hurt himself as well as you have not slept in like two weeks, nor has he. He's in distress. You're in distress. This is not working by by telephone visits or or in clinic, come to the emergency room. Um, And in the emergency room, we did a few things. We first made sure that there wasn't some other medical issue that was going on that was causing him to escalate in this fashion, infection, medication side effects, and so forth. The next thing we did was try to identify what the issues were and try to identify what the triggers were for this kind of behavior that he was demonstrating particularly the restlessness and, and, and the agitation aspects of it, and then try to target each one of those things 
as part of a sort of a multimodal, if you will, global treatment plan, um, which very much included counseling his wife, counseling his family on, listen, this is not just pain. This is actually a symptom of his dementia. And because it's that, yes, we need to treat the pain, but we also need to treat this other aspect, which includes informing yourselves as a family, um, certain non-medication strategies to try to manage behavior, what they call behavior management, as well as in this situation, because of its extremity, uh, we did need to use medications as well. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's, um, I think, day-night reversal, you know, sundowning with day-night reversal, uh, threatening harm, uh, that kind of thing, I think is very, very challenging. And when it gets to that point, absolutely, calling 911, going to the emergency room is very appropriate. Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm, I, I'm working on a case right now where, and I'm hoping that the family member is watching, where, you know, that like, for instance, where the wife is continuously writing notes, threatened to kill herself, or, you know, I have other other clients who actually sometimes the, the person with dementia is threatening to kill their caregiver saying, I want to kill you, I want to kill you. Um, and I always feel that those type of threats need to be taken seriously. Absolutely. Absolutely. So physical aggression is another one of the very challenging behaviors, physical aggression of the person against their, their family member, their caregiver. Uh, and sometimes, you know, you, you know, there are times where, you know, it's kind of a um, uh, all bark, no bite kind of thing. It's, you know, it's, it's sort of this verbal aggressivity and so forth, but you know what, you can manage it. Uh, they've always been like, but if you're starting to feel afraid, if your family member is starting to feel afraid for you, you know, your daughter is afraid for you, mom, what is dad going to do in the middle of the night kind of thing? Um, absolutely. You got to take that very seriously. And uh, I mean, of course, if uh, barring an immediate, immediate, uh, threat to your safety or the safety of your of your family member with uh, or your person with uh, dementia, um, in which case you should be calling 911 and going to the emergency room. Mm -hmm. um, call your doctor, call your CLSC uh, case manager. If you're involved in a geriatrics clinic, a memory clinic, call them. Oftentimes there's a nurse specialist who's working in the clinic to see if there's anything that can be done. Um, but yeah, if you're afraid, go to the emergency room. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about fixation. So oftentimes we see that, you know, in this patient that you were dealing with, their fixation was on pain. Other times fixations could be that they are, they are talking about a family member that they are convinced is cheating on them or has, is doing something terrible and they just can't let go of this fixation. It's constantly, um, you know, that, that, that someone's cheating on somebody, somebody's stealing from somebody, and no matter how much you try to convince them otherwise, they just can't let go. How do families cope with that? that that's actually my, the third dangerous behavior I would bring up, which is paranoid delusions. Delusions simply meaning sort of false beliefs, things that aren't real. Um, we do, of course, at least as the health professionals, we do need to make sure that it's not real, because <laughs> sometimes there are elements of reality at least admixed in. Um, but, uh, yeah, people can develop, you know, cheating, convince that their spouse is cheating on them. Somebody took my toothbrush. You stole my toothbrush. I know you, listen, who's going to steal your toothbrush. Okay. <laughs> your jewelry, maybe not your toothbrush. Okay. Um, but for them, that is their reality. That is their brain trying to figure out, trying to make sense of, well, I wouldn't just lose my toothbrush. So somebody must have taken it, you know, especially if that was kind of all their, always their personality in life sort of thing. Um, how do you deal with that? Uh, depending on the, the gravity of it, th there is never enough proof that you can show the person 
that will convince, oh yes, of course I was wrong. What was I thinking? You know, I mean, you can try gently to explain initially, but if you see that you're hitting the same wall over and over, no, I don't believe you. That's what he's doing. At a, a, a person where he was convinced his son was completely fleecing him, taking out all his money, this and that. And it got to the point that he was so paranoid that when his son would come over, he would actually get physically aggressive and try to harm his son. Um, and the, the heartbreaking thing, but what was necessary for everybody's well-being and sanity was his son stopped visiting. The son was the trigger for this paranoid delusion. Um, and what ultimately worked for everyone is that the son stepped back and stepped away. He was, of course, in contact with the rest of his family, with his mother, with his siblings. But that's what it took to manage in that sort of situation. Other times, if it's less concerning to sidestep the issue, to say you'll come back to it and so forth, and maybe the person will be able to let go of it and, and so forth. There are some times, though, that, you know what, you may not be able to let go of it until you really do address it. Um, okay, let's find those keys, you know, let's find that brooch. Um, or what we sometimes see, unfortunately, is people who go to the bank, take out a large amount of money, bring it home, hide it, and of course, they forget where they put it. Okay, let's find that money, because, you know, it is a few thousand bucks kind of thing. Um, so there are instances where you have to do that. But um, it's not an easy one. You've got both elements of paranoid delusions and repetitiveness. And the repetitiveness, um, when it's paranoid, that actually can get dangerous. Um, but even when it's not paranoid, the repetitiveness can just really, really wear you down. You know, how many times can you tell the person that, yes, Cindy is coming over for dinner tonight, or no, your mother died six years ago, or something like that, you know? Mm -hmm. um, it, it's hard. Um, there are uh, resources much more knowledgeable than me, things uh, like this series, like the Alzheimer's Society. Uh, there's a book I really like. I'm not shilling for them. I don't get kickbacks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, a book I particularly like called The 36-Hour Day, because the day feels a lot longer than 24 hours sometimes, which actually goes through these kinds of behaviors and says, listen, this could be a behavioral symptom of dementia. Look, look at what's going on. Try to identify what triggered it. And then these are strategies that you can try to use to manage it. Distraction. Uh, music, um, just a, a different activity, something else that can help try to change the person's one, you know, one track, you know, that eight track. That's yeah, yeah. There. How do we, so let's say now the person is more in the early to, early to middle stage of dementia. This is a lot of the, the questions that I'm getting where, you know, they're still mobile. They still have, you know, a lot of their cognitive abilities. However, they've reached the stage where being alone is not safe. But this individual, they wanna leave their house on their own. They wanna to go to the office. They want to go to the liquor store and buy alcohol. Uh, you know, they just wanna go out and they refuse to you know, have a companion, but we, we know that it's not safe. How do family members deal with that? Um, so not, not safe in two things. I, I, you're mentioning wandering. So the possibility yeah. of going out and getting They'll lost. They'll get lost. Yeah. And, and then the other aspect in terms of, can you actually even leave them for a few hours at home alone while you go to the bank or something like that? Yeah. Um, for the risk of wandering, uh, you know, you can try various compensatory strategies. I think the first thing is, is if that's actually happened or is that you can see that it seriously could happen. I think one of the first things is to make sure that a person has some form of identity on them. 
um, and there are various formats of that. Um, there is, um, you know, the medical uh, ID bracelets or, or in a necklace or so forth. Um, you know, you can get one from the pharmacy where you just write on it. That's one thing. And then, of course, there are programs uh, like with a joint program between Alzheimer's Society and Medical Alert, uh, the Safely Home program. Again, I'm not shilling for them. It's just it's 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 a very well known one where the whole medical alert type of uh, system is that if the person is found out looking confused somewhere and whatnot, you can look at the bracelet, the paramedics are, are, are trained to look at the bracelet right. and they have a phone number, 1-800, you know, medical alert, they call there and they can get information, they can get your contact family members information so that they can get this person safely home. Uh, that's one thing, so if you, you see it's coming, ID, you got to get ID. And, and it's not enough to say, you know, just a little card in the wallet, because what happens if they don't take the wallet, they don't take right. you know, kind of thing. Um, the other thing is that, again, depending on how dangerous it is, uh, ways to deter the person from going out the front door. Uh, this can range everything from a sign. Uh, you'll see this, for example, in some residences where they will put a stop sign. And somehow just that stop sign can trigger somebody to say, oh, you know, or, or do not enter sign or something like that is enough to trigger a person to say, oh, okay, I won't go there. Um, it may be as extreme as a lock, a lock that they cannot open. Of course, you want to make sure that it's openable in an emergency, but something that, that deters them. Um, I had one uh, family member who was great. Uh, he, he installed some sort of movement detector speaker kind of device at the door. And so when it detected movement, it would speak in his recorded voice, mom, don't go through here, go back to the room. And, and, and she would remember and would remind her, oh yeah, okay, I'm not supposed to do that kind of thing. But ultimately there are some people who are just, if I can say this, hellbent on yes, yeah. want to go. Um, and then you got to seriously think, is this person safe to leave home alone at all? Um, it's a very gray zone. Sometimes even myself, I, I needed to be told, now you need to have somebody there at all times. I was never sure, you know, when do you cross that line? I, as a health professional, had to be told by my husband's health care professionals, hmm. this is the line. Now he needs somebody there all the time. What are you going to do? And whether it's uh, and then various types of help and so on and so forth, but it was genuinely for his safety. You do what you got to do. I, what I get from a lot of family members. So what you spoke about. Number one, oftentimes the bracelet, the medical bracelet, which I totally agree with. But they'll say my my husband, my wife, my parent will never wear it. They'll take it off. And number two, every time we've hired a companion or tried to get somebody in the door, they refuse to let them in. They kick them out, they swear at them. Um, so how, I mean, I believe at some point it comes down to tough love. I mean, you have no choice. You've got to, I don't want to use the word force it upon it, but for their safety and well-being, there's no choice. But most cases, because the person with dementia is in denial and they don't think anything's wrong, how do you impose that extra support in the home? It's hard. Um... All of this, if you will, are my, my philosophy, the geriatric philosophy is always the least confrontational to the most confrontational. Uh, another way to put it is kind of pick your battles. <laughs> you know, um, if this is something that's going to be an immediate safety issue, you know, you're not trying to negotiate this, uh, you know, in the, the words of Han Solo, there is no time to take this to committee, you know, kind of thing, right? So uh, there is that kind of situation where, you know what, sorry, so-and-so has to be here. But there are ways 
that you can try to facilitate it. There are ways that you can try to make it work better. For example, mom will never accept wearing a bracelet. Uh, dad will never wear one of those help line button things kind of thing. You know what? Have you tried it? Try it. At least try it, you know? And yeah. if it really works, so be it. And the same thing with support services, with people. Um, you don't know until you try. And what I would recommend, what we recommend is the first few times a person comes over, the first few times that care worker comes from the CLSC or from the agency, be there, be present, because it's frightening to have some stranger showing up in your house and stripping you naked and throwing you into the shower kind of thing, right? So be there when the people come the first few times at least. Show them, you know what, this is somebody we can trust. I'm here, I'm protecting you. We're seeing how things... If things really, really don't click, you know, you've, you've been trying with this person for, I don't know, a month, you know, don't try just once or twice, try, try like a good month, let's say, and it's really not working out. Uh, there's a complete personality clash. Okay, ask the case manager, ask the agency manager, is there an option for something else? Um, but uh, sometimes, yeah, the person will never get along with anybody. You know, sorry, mom, I need to go and get the groceries. Uh, so-and-so is staying here, forget about hired help, it could even be a family member that they, you know, so, you know, cousin so-and-so has to stay here and I'll be back, see you soon, kind of thing. And cousin so-and-so, to protect themselves from verbal abuse and whatnot, may actually stay in a separate room, you know, but at least there's a person around to make sure that if trouble happens, help can be rendered. Um, I'd like to talk about, you know, I'll call it challenging behavior that it's it's not harmful but you know a lot of people don't want to have a hard time discussing it so i'd like to bring it up and this is where the person with dementia gets to the point where they start urinating around the house or having bowel movements around the house um you know not recognizing anymore i mean and they're still in the midstream of the disease so you know they're quite aware however you know the brain is not saying it's i need to go to use the washroom so they have bowel movements around the house and they also then start actually in some cases start playing with their bowel movement and um it's a topic that is very it's 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 very, very difficult for family members. You know, I've had cases where people just start, you know, yelling at their loved one, what are they doing? But they don't, they don't recognize what they're doing. So what would be an appropriate way to deal with that behavior? I think number one is to make sure there isn't something medical going on. Uh, make sure this isn't, uh, for example, an infection. Make sure this isn't a medication side effect um, or a sign of something else going on. I think that would be the first step, especially if this is just you know, fell out of the sky and was never an issue before. They never had urine incontinence issues before. Suddenly they've got this urine incontinence issue. First, make sure it's not X, Y, and Z. The second thing may be to try to encourage them to at least wear under, um, you know, protective undergarments, pull-ups, pads, that kind of thing. That can be a huge battle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> frankly refuse. They, they even have partial insight that they have some bladder control issues, but oh, I don't need a pull-up kind of thing. And then you have all these wet chairs and sofas everywhere. Um, so, okay, you're trying, you're encouraging them to do it and so forth. Uh, you know, they really trust their sister. Okay, ask your aunt to speak to them about it. You know, oh, I do that too, you know, blah, blah, blah. Okay, try to normalize it, if you will. Um, you know, if you got to put chair protectors on the on the sofa and on the bed and this and that, so be it. Doesn't look pretty, but you know, at least you're going to protect your furniture and so forth. Um, there are other ways in more uh, advanced dementia where the person literally forgets to recognize sometimes the, the the sensations from their body, 
what we do called prompted toy living. So that we will say, you know what, um, we've just finished practice. Uh, let's go to the bathroom now and see if you need a bowel movement. Because that's a typically a time when the reflex kicks in that you need a bowel movement. Mm -hmm. but let's go to the toilet now and do it. Don't wait for them to feel it or not feel it or whatever. Let's go there. Um, it's been, you know, a few hours now. Let's go to the toilet. Just see if you need to urinate and so forth. And if the person's willing to do that, that's great. If the person is still not able or willing to express that, uh, sometimes uh, we'll do uh, a variation of that, which is time toileting. Um, you know, it's two hours, let's go to the toilet. It's another two hours, let's go to the toilet. Just trying to, at the very least, if they are incontinent, it'll be less, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think it is uh, first and foremost to make sure it isn't a medical condition. Mm -hmm. That's a really good strategy. I like that the time toileting. And um, so let's talk about the uh, the use of compassionate lying. You know, when does lying and I, I mean, I have to say I like to use that one or I use it quite a bit or the other concept of, you know, also joining their journey. So, if you know, if they're telling stories that are not hurting anyone are not harmful you know, or you're using, you know, compassionate lying to just make sure that they don't become aggressive. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what would you say about compassionate lying? Um, you do what you got to do. <laughs> That's <Yeah>. what it's <laughs> um, You know, when it comes to all these behavior type issues, the first thing is, and why we're having this kind of session is firstly recognize that this could be a behavior related to dementia uh, and then recognize what the triggers are for it. But the next thing is, and this is where compassionate lying comes in, is de-escalate. Okay. You see what's going on. You know where this is going to go. De-escalate. And oftentimes the de-escalate doesn't involve any you know, falsehoods or whatnot. But sometimes the de-escalation involves lying, if you will. Most typically lying by omission. You know, um, A classic scenario, which can be very painful for people, is uh, the person has forgotten a close family member has died. Okay, they, they, they forgot that their daughter died last year from breast cancer. And uh, at the time, it was a horrible tragedy. It really, it, it hurt them very badly. But with the dementia, they eventually forgot. And then saying, you know, where's Janice? Janice hasn't been here for a while. Let's call Janice. You know, I want her over for supper and so forth. And you can yell till the cows come home. Janice died a year ago, mom. You know, she's not coming back anymore. And blah, 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 blah. And that's going to escalate and escalate and escalate. You're going to have a catastrophic reaction. You're going to have pushback. Whatever. You can't argue this. What do you do? Lies by omission? I miss Janice too. Yeah, it's been a long time we haven't seen her. Yeah, I really wish, uh, I hope she can come for supper one day too. And, and you know what, you're, you're, you're lying, but you're not lying, you know, kind of thing. An another uh, particularly difficult situation is driving. The person is insisting on driving, okay? Um, you've managed to hide the car. Where's the car? I wanna go for a drive, where's the car? I'm sorry, honey, but it's in the shop. The, the, the mechanic said they're waiting for a part. Well, where's the car? they forget. Um, it's in the shop. We're waiting for a car. Um, I haven't changed the winter tires yet. We haven't had a chance to put on the winter tires, uh, so we can't drive it yet. We're, it's illegal to drive it. Okay, okay. Um, you know what? You do what you got to do. And, and, and speaking of driving, I actually had one family. It was ingenious that um, they had a son who had recently started a new job in another city. And not that he absolutely needed a car, but he could probably use a car. 
And so the person's wife and daughter proposed it to him, like, you know, um, Kent could really use a car kind of thing. And so the, the, the gentleman with dementia was like, hey, let's give him our car. We don't need our car so much. And there goes the car and everybody's happy. And hey, Ken's got a car now, you know? So, I mean, yeah. that worked for them. Obviously it doesn't work for everybody, but you know, you do what you gotta do to deescalate because the bottom line for all of this, all of these treatments, all of these activities, all of these pills is quality of life. That's ultimately what it comes down to. Quality of life for the person, quality of life for the people who are around them. And, you know, short of, you know, telling them something obviously, you know, it's before their eyes and they're correct and you're lying to their face, you know, kind of gaslighting them as they say, um, yeah. If that's what you need to do for their quality of life, so be it. And I think, like you say, the whole thing is pick your battles, you know, for family members. You know, if if what you're going to say is, I mean, first of all, with dementia, there is no logical reasoning ever with the person, right? So it's like that little, the, the disease is that little person sitting on the shoulder and telling the person, no, don't believe her, don't believe her, don't believe her. But like, it doesn't matter what you're going to say. They're not going to believe you. They're not going to understand clarity at some point so if what they're doing or behaving is not dangerous to them and it's not dangerous to you let them do it like I often have times family members complaining that their loved one has keeps making the bed you know 10 times a day changing their clothes 10 times a day emptying closets so if it's not harming them and it's just stimulate them stimulating them let them do it right yeah. um, because if you keep nitpicking after them or correcting them or telling them that what they're doing is wrong constantly it's going to just make everything escalate escalating yeah right. now, that's not to say that you might try gently in the beginning to see that okay maybe they genuinely didn't know or this or that and or maybe they don't have a catastrophic reaction it doesn't escalate but if you see that you're hitting that same wall over and over and over again it doesn't make sense to keep hitting that wall mm -hmm. so you know when when does it when should a family member really or you know an informal caregiver recognize that it's just not possible for the, their loved one to live at home anymore i mean when when does behavior become too dangerous when is burnout too severe for the like when is it time to really think maybe i just can't do this anymore okay i can't say there's one set answer for that except for behaviors that are clearly uh, a, a danger to them, to the person, him or herself, or the others around them. You know, if if a person is literally going to get hit by a cane, uh, you know, or or pushed down the stairs or whatever. I'm not saying that. The, by the way, I, I should have prefaced all of this to say that you know we talk about these behaviors, but it doesn't mean that it happens to every person. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, there are some people who never depend um, become aggressive, who never become agitated, and so forth. Sometimes, actually, they swing the other way and become apathetic. But um, why talking about these things is that so people can recognize it and then say, "Okay, this could be. What do we do about it?" So definitely dangerous behaviors, um, yeah, and, and that cannot be compensated for in the home setting. Um, when the behavioral issues are taking a serious toll on the caregiver's health and where that line in the sand is, that's where it gets tricky. Everybody has a different line in the sand. Your healthcare professionals may all say, no, no, this is not tolerable. You can't do this anymore, whatever. And you're saying, you know what? I, I, I actually, I can, <laughs> you know? So, but recognizing that at some point there is a line in the sand that for your own well-being. You know, I had a gentleman who started having his, his angina, his heart pain started acting up. I said, no, 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 this is the line in the sand. You gotta yeah. change now, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. 
Um, and that's very real. When you mention heart, I mean, I also have I know a lot of people that their their heart health has been impacted because of the stress, and that's very serious because you'll see many times where the the caregiver will actually pass away before the person with dementia because of the stress. And anybody who has any type of you know heart palpitations, heart issues needs to seek medical attention as soon as possible. Your body is telling you something. You're you can't sleep. You're you're getting anxious. You're getting depressed. You're you're mind is telling you something that this is not working something's got to change and it doesn't necessarily mean immediately oh, go to a nursing home kind of thing it may mean okay we need other things to adapt but it does mean something's got to change and certain extreme levels absolutely you have to consider not able to stay at home and and this is particularly painful because say at an earlier stage of the illness when the person still had insights didn't have major behavioral issues and so forth they may have made you promise don't ever put me in a nursing home. Please don't ever put me in there. I don't want to be in a nursing home. And you promised back to them, I will never put you in a nursing home, dad. I will never put you in a nursing home, honey, kind of thing. That was then, you know, things are different now. And, and you know, perhaps the person at the time could not have even conceived how they would be acting as the disease progressed. This is a very different situation now. And nursing home may actually be a necessary thing for their safety, your safety, but sometimes may even enhance their quality of life, depending on the issues. It may actually give them a place to have more socialization. It may give them an opportunity that when you do react, interact, rather, you're not fighting or you're not, you know, just changing a diaper or something. You're actually interacting as husband and wife or spouse and spouse or daughter, son or whatever kind of thing, you know? Um, so, uh, yeah, but when it comes to that, the, the other thing though, is all of this is relative to what resources are available out there, out there in the system, the public care system, healthcare system, as well as if there are private options, as well as what's in the family and so forth. So what is the line in the sand for one person may not be the line in the sand for the other. Um, along those lines of picking your battles. If the CLSC is telling you, listen, we cannot do more than X number of hours per week, you can, again, scream until you're blue in the face. I want more hours. I want more hours. You know, it's not safe for my mother to be home alone. I want more hours. Listen, there are no more hours, okay? Yeah. So either find another resource, or if that is not feasible, it's not, you know, financially manageable and so forth. It's not, uh, there's nobody, you're, you know, you're too isolated to have anybody else around in town to help. Yeah, mismatch of what the person needs and what's available and resources can mean relocation. And that's the big challenge right now with due to the pandemic. I mean, even prior to the pandemic, getting hours from the CLSCs or for those people watching outside of Quebec public health care system, it's not easy. And, and the other challenge is that majority of people don't even know how to access care. They have no idea how do I go to the CLSC? What's this? What is the CLSC? the whole process and I'm going to be doing a webcast just on that, you know, how, learning how to navigate the healthcare system. But um, let's talk about the role of medication in managing these challenging behaviors. Cause a lot, you know, when, 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 when behaviors escalate to a certain point, you know, what could you as a doctor do to, to manage that using medication? Again, and I, and I, I, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but again, the number one thing is what is going on try to identify why is the person acting like this? Um, is it because they cannot express that they need to toilet? Is it because they can't express that they're in pain? Is it because they're afraid? Something, something like that. Always try to identify the trigger so that you can manage the trigger. Because if you just tell me 
he doesn't sleep at night, he has insomnia, sure, I can prescribe all kinds of stuff that'll snow him, okay? But if, you know, then we're gonna have medication side effects. So let's try to uh, identify and uh, address the trigger or triggers as much as possible. The second thing is, again, not to be a broken record, but the number one treatment of these behavior issues is behavior management trigger, de-escalation, distraction, all these other kinds of techniques. And for example, the, the Alzheimer's Society actually has web pages on each one of these. And one, one of them, I think it's called understanding behavior. They actually have a table where it says, this behavior, try these tips. This behavior, try these tips. Okay, you've done all of that. And it's getting to a dangerous level. It's getting to a level where some, somebody is gonna break. Um, yes, then there may be a role for medications. If it's to the point where it's threatening the person or the other person, or the caregiver's uh, safety, well-being, um, it's threatening something like the person's ability to remain at their residence. They're gonna be evicted if this issue isn't addressed. Uh, yes, there may be a, a, a certain role for medications. Again, trying to tigger, target as much as problem the triggers. So if it's a depressive, anxious type symptoms, trying to address that. If it's uh, you know delusional hallucinations, paranoia, trying to address that with other types of medications, sometimes some of the mem medications for memory itself, uh, for cognition, the cognitive enhancers sometimes may help with certain types of behavior as well. So, but to not uh, expect that there's going to be a pill that will take care of everything, because all pills good effects, side effects. And we always have to try to balance that. Um, I don't know how much more detail you want me to go into. No, no, that's perfect. So so I have one last question, kind of like a two-part question. So it's, it's really, you know, based on your personal and your professional experience, what advice would you share to family members upon receiving a diagnosis of dementia for a family? Like if I'm, I'm so I'm the daughter dragging her mother in the office and what is your prescription of care for us as a family? I think the main, the mainstay, and I tell people that you know, the, the crux of treatment of all of this is to be informed about what's going on and what are the options to manage it? Yes, there's medications and blah, blah, blah kind of stuff. Okay, but the mainstay of treatment is knowing what's going on and frankly, adapting around what the brain is no longer able to do. And, and you may have heard, other people may have heard this, this cliche, it's a very annoying cliche that dementia, caregiving and dementia is a marathon, you know, that kind of thing. You know, mm -hmm. such and such illness is a sprint, but dementia, that's a marathon kind of thing. It's like blah, 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 blah kind of thing. I called it actually a, a cyclone. I called it a, it can a, be a, that. Cy a, a cyclone of caregiving. That's what I felt it was in a, from my perspective. Absolutely. Or it could be a very, very painful uphill marathon. But I think the reason yeah. that people are saying that is that this is not something that's going to be over in like two weeks or three months or one year kind of thing. This is something that potentially, I mean, other things can happen in life, but this is something that potentially can go quite a long time. Um, and I always thought that was a really irritating cliche until I actually started training for a marathon. So a few years after my husband died, I had my midlife crisis or something. So I went out and bought a black leather jacket and I signed up for a learn to run class. Hmm. Uh, and somehow it stuck, I enjoyed it. And uh, I did, did, made myself the goal that I'm gonna run a marathon before I hit 50. And uh, there's this whole training process and whatnot. And the training includes gradually building up your volume, the distance, as well as learning when you need to refuel yourself along the way so that your muscles still have energy to go. 
Um, and you got to hydrate too. You know, there are all these water stations along the way of the marathon so you can hydrate and go to the next one and hydrate and go to the next one. And I thought, you know what, man, that really is a good analogy, okay? You got to learn about the, the whole illness. You got to learn how to pace yourself to recognize when certain things need to be done, don't need to be done, and don't try to do everything at once and overwhelm yourself. You got to know when to refuel yourself, take a break, get some help, that kind of thing. And the help may come in the form of a water station, somebody to literally just give you essential fluids back so that you can get it to the next kilometer and the next kilometer and, and, and complete your marathon. That's just the most amazing analogy, actually, that I've heard up until now. It's just amazing. I think and, that- And I can tell you figuratively and literally, <laughs> literally, it, it fits. That's, that's amazing. And, and I, I just think oftentimes, you know, family members don't feel like they have permission to take a break or permission to take care of themselves. And I called it a cyclone because I was for 12 years, it was, it was a long journey. And I just felt, I mean, it was a marathon, but I just felt I was constantly spinning, spinning, spinning. And then, you know, unfortunately it had an impact on my health, on my heart health. Um, but it's, it's just so important to take care of yourselves as, as, as a family member, because if you, if you can't take care of yourselves, you're not going to provide a good quality of care to the person that you love. I'll say if the caregiver goes down, the whole ship goes down. Yeah. Any, any last words of advice? Um, I guess two things. You're not alone. Uh, well, never, nobody will ever understand completely what a certain person goes through. We go through similar issues. And um, so along those lines, you do not have to recreate the wheel. You know, there are a lot of wheels that are already out there that people have created your current wheel is not working, maybe somebody has a spare wheel that you can try out and apply to see if it works in your situation too. Mm -hmm. So don't, don't be afraid to talk and don't be afraid to get help. Dr. Chu, thank you so much for this really, really important and very informative webcast today. I'm so grateful to have had you on my show thank you. and look forward to working together as part of our program. Um, please join us next week on Wednesday, August 19th. The topic will be the realities of caregiving within the LGBTQ communities. And we will be talking to Dr. Shari Brotman, Associate Professor McGill School of Social Work, Mr. Julien Rougerie, Program Manager at Fondation Emergence, and Ms. Chloe Vio, a volunteer at Aging Gayfully. This webcast is an initiative of the McGill Dementia Education Program, which is funded by private donations. If you would like to make a contribution to our program or for more information, please visit mcgill.ca slash dementia. And if you have specific topics or questions that you would like to address, please email us at dementia at mcgill.ca. Until next week, take good care of yourselves and of your loved ones. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs>